0: coming your way this week. I did some rework of the handout, um, had a couple, some people gave me a couple suggestions last, last time on the handout and I want to make sure that uh, it's helpful and useful for, for you. Thank you so much. All right, if you're just coming in now, just one. Does anyone else need handouts as you're coming in? Abby, do you need a handout? Okay. Does Jared need one? Okay. All right. Would you like to make sure that this comes into stragglers? All right, we'll get started now. Uh, Last week we were together. uh, We ended thinking about Polycarp, who gave his life as a martyr. Uh, The word martyr means witness. He gave his life as a testimony or a witness to the veracity of Jesus Christ by giving his life for something uh, most people would not give their lives for. Speaks great volumes for the testimony of Christ. You'll also remember last time we were together, we talked about the Roman Empire uh, attempting to uh, stamp out Christians, but also it was in a stage of decline. It was gradually becoming weaker. Uh, There was a lot of internal conflict. Um, They wanted to cleanse their society from the godless Christians and try to re establish itself on pagan principles. And uh, these things were not um, unannounced by Jesus uh, before he was crucified and rose again. He did say that, that they would be delivered and drugged before kings as witnesses for his sake. And uh, yet, in spite of that, the church grew uh, f- through the first three centuries. We've said that uh, the church was approximately 8 to 12 percent of the Roman Empire. Um, by 150 A.D., which is remarkable growth at a very fast pace. And uh, we also recognize that there was also res- the rise of false teaching during that time period. So you have, on the one hand, the political organizations trying to stamp out Christianity. And then on the other hand, you have Satan's influence in the teachings of pseudo-Christians to try to, th- to diminish the impact of Christianity. And uh, we're, going to dec- we're going to look th- this week and think through the implications of Constantine as an emperor coming to faith, as uh, historians believe, come to faith uh, early in his reign and uh, the impact that that had upon the church. But we're also going to think through the implications of the false teaching. The church had to have a way and a mechanism to address false teaching, and so we're going to consider that this morning and think through ecumenical councils. Uh, the word uh, ecumenical council simply refers to a gathering of Christian leaders from the whole of Christian, Christian world to discuss merits of doctrine and practice. And the Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and Protestant churches all recognize the creeds that came out of these councils of the first for ecumenical councils. So in the early centuries, there was still a lot of agreement, but as the centuries progressed, some divisions took place and separations because of a refusal to agree to the central doctrine uh, put together by these councils. And um, we'll we'll talk about that a little bit this morning as well. Um, But there's a lot of opportunities that uh, afforded Christianity through the developments that were taking place in the political world around them. And so let's think uh, first of all about uh, Constantine and the imperial Christianity that developed underneath of his his time. Uh, Constantine is famous for having a vision. Uh, I need to give you a little background on him so you understand why this vision was so significant in his life. He Uh, he he had, let's just say, a vision where he saw what appeared to him to be a a cross symbol in the sky, and he heard a voice that said, go go forth in this uh, sign, and you will be victorious. Now, this happened a few years before he had a a pretty significant battle uh, against competitors in Rome. I think, if I recall last... Sunday, I mentioned that as the church was growing, there was internal conflict within the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire couldn't seem to organize itself very well under one supreme emperor. They had to g- divide the, the rule between several other lesser uh, emperors, and joint rule was the way that they attempted to have unity. Uh, within the empire. But this this was very problematic, um, just as problematic as our own heritage of having uh, factions within our own nation, a southern vision for how to do things and a northern vision for how to do things. Um, that was very, that was common in Rome at that time as well. And uh, there was an emperor who ruled most of Italy and North Africa, named Maxentius, and he reigned from three hundred six to three twelve, and he ruled um, what we'd say modern-day Italy and North Africa. He was a prolific builder. He built lots of structure in the city, and he tried to revive the heritage of of Rome. But in the West, more in the France, uh, Germania. Gaul, Britannia. There was another emperor whose name was Constantine, and they were vying for control over the empire. And uh, Constantine crossed the Alps, heading towards Rome to defeat Maximinius, uh, who was then stationed in Rome. And he came across the bridge, a very famous bridge called the Milvian Bridge, and in response to this vision that he had seen six years prior, it was such a, a burning vision in his mind, he recognized the hand of God in allowing him to defeat Maximinus, and he unified the whole Roman Empire underneath of his rule. And at that point, he realized, this is not my doing, this is the supreme deity's doing. And he gave recognition to God and decided to embrace Christianity. Now, that battle took place in 312. Well, a year later, uh, he, he made an edict uh, called the Edict of Milan, and he decreed toleration for Christianity, and this significantly changed uh, everything for Christians. Like, overnight, the previous 50 years, the church had been under intense persecution. Remember, Last time we were together, we talked about how they had uh, worship certificates that they had to present. All of a sudden, they were going from being beheaded to being blessed. And it was very shocking for these Christians. All of a sudden, bishops who had to be undercover now were free to, to come into the emperor's council room. And it was shocking and they didn't know quite how to handle all of this new authority that they had been granted. Um, you know, we have a ca- uh, our president has a cabinet, and he has advisors. It would be like all of a sudden saying that, uh, that evangelical Christians had a place at the table here. And, and and we can actually influence policy for the empire. So they, they were in a, in a really, really strange place. And... Uh, um, this edict granted toleration for Christians on both sides of the empire, the West and the East. And there's a couple of noteworthy items that occurred in this edict that I think would be helpful for us to realize when we think about freedom of religion. Um, there was a, uh, an acknowledgment in this edict that all forms of religious worship would be permitted and that none could be discriminated against. And there was also an element that it went beyond just simply religious toleration and it embraced a certain fundamental, um, a couple of fundamental new understandings of what it means to have religious freedom. Um, There is the belief that uh, a Christian by the name of Lactanius was part of the process of drafting this edict of Milan. And uh, in this, uh, we hear some of these elements that we might even recognize today, um, in which in this it says that each person should be granted freedom to give to, to give his mind to the religion which he felt most fitting to himself, because the supreme divinity is to be served with a free mind, and the worship of God cannot be coerced. It must be an act of the will and arise out of genuine devotion and piety. So it's, it's pretty remarkable that these elements were included in this edict. And can you not hear some of those elements that we hold dear in our First Amendment here in America today? And um, of course, this is a, an issue that was debated for centuries and, and wasn't fully as free as perhaps it was intended to be, to be issued. Um, but there is a decidedly a voluntaristic element in there acting of the will arising out of a love for God that's not coerced. And so, very, very fascinating, and it really shaped a lot of our ideas uh, in the West. Uh, some of the results, as I said, of the Edict of Milan um, are pretty, were pretty, pretty significant for Christians because, as I said, they went from overnight being persona non grata to being think like, come into the courtroom and advise us on policy, about grain policy from Northern Africa, or let's, let's talk about should we expand and take the military and go in this direction? And, and they were being given inputs that, that they had just, it just blew their minds. But there was a problem that developed in this because the ancient Greek and Roman idea of worshiping God was not so much around ideas. It was much more about rituals and trying to coerce and manage the deity. And rituals were what they knew. And so there was always this tension between the pagan mindset and the Christian mindset, which says what's most important is how we think about God And that's what's more important than some of the rituals that we include and participate in. And it's really a difference of the orientation of the heart away from the material and to the spiritual. And uh, you can even see some of that in Scripture. um, Just how even Paul, talking to the Corinthians in Greece, he's articulating correct doctrine. He's trying to be very careful about the kinds of words that he uses so that they're not confused about who the true God is. And 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so, as the church is becoming a little bit more free to be able to articulate and explain itself to pagans. There's also now time to evaluate and think through what does it mean for, for God to be one, and then also to have Jesus having a claim of divinity. How do we reconcile these apparent conflicts that we would see in Scripture? And as you can imagine, there were significant ideas, and some better than others, of how to explain this. And so what we're going to shift gears now is to think through how, how does the church, with its newfound freedom, begin to take the time to explain the concept of the Trinity, for example, and then we'll also look at how the church wrestled with trying to understand, well, how do we now think about Jesus as humanity and his deity? And so, thinking through, first, the theology of the Trinity, one God and three persons. Um, I had mentioned in introduction the concept of a council, of gathering together of, of leaders within the church to try to wrestle with some of these questions. And so, they, they, they grappled with two biblical truths. First, the belief that God is one and the belief in Jesus's divinity. And uh, there was a council meeting that was set and appointed for all the church leaders to come and gather in a town called Nicaea. And uh, that's, if you see the map there, that's Turkey just underneath the Black Sea. And that's kind of a region that's talked about in the news a lot. Just north of the Black Sea is Ukraine. And uh, you can see the red dot there, Nicaea, there's a strait there, and you go into um, the nations between—what what are the nations there? There's, there's some nations there. The Bal- is it the Baltics? I think so. Yugoslavia. And then you have Greece down uh, you just outside of the, the picture there to give you context. Bulgaria, Romania, thank you. All these gamers who play war games online, they know all the geography um, and history, too. Yeah. So, the Council of Nicaea was set to ask the question, is Jesus God? Now, there were several competing theories to, and attempts to try to explain this apparent contradiction, and you'll see them there on your sheet as well. There was a theory that perhaps Jesus was ad- adopted, um, and this theory uh, was proposed that Mary gave birth to Jesus of Nazareth, who was a mere man, but it was later at his baptism that the divinity was put upon him. And at his resurrection, there was an affirmation of of his divinity uh, by the Father. And this is an adoptive type of theory. And... Um, I just want to propose this question, and I want you to ask, see if you can answer it. What are some problems that could come up with this kind of a belief? Go ahead. The eternality of Jesus, yeah. Absolutely. You can also envision, too, his, um, the question about sinlessness. If he was a mere man, then what is the value of his sacrifice? Um, is it Become because he was anointed, or how does this? It it was at the very, at the very, very confusing, and not settled. Um, And because of this, Jesus really can't be our substitute. It's not a a, a very well crafted statement. Um, Another view is called modalism. Um, Modalism is the belief that. Uh, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit amounted basically to three different names or modes of the same God. Maybe you've heard the popular analogy of, you know, um, you know the three forms of, wa- of water, you know, as a way to explain uh, the Trinity or, you know, ice, gas, liquid, but they're all the same substance, just taking on a different kind of form. That's modalism. And, and really, the difficulty in that is that it doesn't properly answer how the Bible presents the relational aspects between the Son and the Father. There is some distinction there. The, the Son is actively praying to the Father. There is communion taking place. And so, in some variations on this, you can actually see how some people would say that the Father is the one who's actually dying, and the Spirit is dying, and the Son is all dying in the process of creating redemption. And so, it doesn't really put together uh, these elements very well. Um, Have you heard of um, oneness Pentecostalism? It might not be that popular up here, but I used to work at FedEx in South Carolina, and I worked with a Pentecostal one, this character. He would argue that uh, basically there is only one name and then we have manifestations of God and that we baptize in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of, but it's only, there's only one name. There's only one, just manifestations. And that's an example of that, that teaching. Arianism. Arianism is, was very controversial. It's because it's named for the the Bishop who espoused this view um, he was a bishop in Alexandria and he taught that God the Father created the Son that the son was subordinated to the Father and he attempted to graft together the Gnostic teaching that the singular which we looked at last Sunday the singular is preferred in any derivation from him has got to be uh, inferior. And so he, he taught that there was such a time when the sun was not. In fact, he was such a good propagandist in his area that he had almost half the city of Alexandria singing a song that he had written, a catechizing, catechizing song. And one of the lyric lines was, there was a time when the sun was not. And it just was, was very pithy and it rang off of people's ears and he was very subversive. And so the council convened and even Arius was invited to participate. Everyone was invited to participate. And in the discussion, there was arguments back and forth. And that was a role of the bishop was to try to put together and craft arguments based upon scripture. And they defined through a confession uh, the conclusions of that council meeting. So I would say that the primary target of that council meeting was Arianism, um, but I, I think you have a handout there, a secondary handout um, that has the creed um, there, 3, 325. I've notated that there are three different articles in this creed, a statement of belief. What do you notice about the organization of these three uh, articles? Pardon me? The focus is the three persons of the Trinity. And so let me just read through it here with you. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the Maker of all things, seen and unseen. And we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things in heaven and earth came into being, who on account of us human beings and our salvation came down and took flesh Becoming a human being, he suffered and rose on the third day, ascended into the heavens, and will come again to judge both the living and the dead. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, the third article there is pretty brief. That's going to get filled out in subsequent council meetings. Uh, but this is a start. And uh, there are four condemnations, and you can see very specifically, they're targeting Arius and some of the things that he had stated as for those who say that that there was a time when he was not, and before being born he was not, and he came into existence out of nothing, and who declare that the Son of God is of a different substance or nature, or is subject to alteration or change, the Catholic and Apostolic Church condemns them. And uh, the word Catholic, I think, I should mention here, uh, simply means universal. It simply means this is is what genuine Christians have believed uh, from the beginning. And so, they're articulating here the significance of this statement. Correct. So, when you put the word Roman beside Catholic, it refers to that, that which is universally agreed among the Roman faith. There is a sense in which there is a Catholicity within the Greek Orthodox or the Russian Orthodox faith, and they have agreement around certain confessions. Just like we have a statement of faith at the tabernacle, we have something that we adhere to as well. And so with the convening of this council, approximately 250 bishops uh, participated and uh, there in Nicaea, and we have the creed. What's really important for us to, to recognize in this Creed is the particular words that are underlined here um, that I have from the, sound, from the substance of the Father. I don't know if you like wordplay and very close word associations, but this is where one of those really unique, important moments of like the, the Yoda being present or not makes a big difference. Have you ever heard of the, the saying, you know, not one jot or tittle will be. But here, the addition of a yoda in the Greek language makes all the difference. And Arius was very actively trying to promote this idea that Jesus was of like substance, not the same substance. And I have, I think I have it here. No, I don't. Is it in your handbook, handout? Okay, homoousios. You guys are—you guys are—you guys are now in third year college, and you're doing great. Okay, Homoousius means of the same. But if you, as soon as you put that little i in there, homi, homo eousios it suddenly changes to being of like substance. And can you see the difference between same and like? Okay. And I want to just take a step back, and I know this may feel a little tedious, but Christianity rises and falls on a correct understanding of who we worship. And to not have that clear makes all the difference. And so the effort here, not worried. Sometimes, I know, I know a lot of us can be like, we want to be doers. We want to be doing things. And that kind of ap- appeals somewhat to our ritualism. We want things to do, rituals, things to... But this is what's diff- so much different between Christianity and the pagan culture that it comes out of. Yes. 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 Oh, yeah. They would count the letters, in particular in the Hebrew context, they would count the letters both forward and backwards on each leaf to make sure that there was nothing missing. And they would, uh, you know, burn the copy that they had and start over if they had too many letters or too few letters. And so they took it very, very seriously. Um, so we have um, this, this, this creed kind of became the, the, the language of Christianity for the next 80 years, although there was an attempt to try to overturn this language because not, there, was, there was an attempt, um, unfortunately, Arius, um, although he was condemned in this, he still had a lot of political influence. He was still able to rally people around him to try to undercut the current of the whole Catholic uh, ch- uh, catholicity of the Church, and uh, so some of the difficulties has to do with language. As you might be aware, the East was dominated by Greek speakers at Rome and westward, Latin speakers, and trying to communicate between the two sometimes made it a little bit difficult. And so, seizing on that difficulty, uh, the emperor's son, Constantine, his son, Constans, I'm sorry, that's confusing, but he was uh, in league with Arius and favored his teaching. And so, this rivalry started to develop between the east and the west and um, it, it, God, it really actually looked like, potentially, that the creed of Nicaea would fall because of the political dominance of these characters. And God, though, raised up a deliverer at that time whose name was Athanasius. Athanasius was a pastor in, Northern, in Egypt. He became a very ardent defender of the homoousius position. And uh, it was later, um, the term was coined Athanasius against the world, because it looked like the whole world was against him. He was defending for the creed that it was at Nicaea, and uh, he ended up being exiled five times in his life over 17 years. Because while he was, yes, a, a pastor of a church, he also had political authority and governors in Rome thought he might, he might stop the supply of grain uh, that Rome needs based upon his influence in Alexandria. Uh, do you know that there's grain? Did you, hear, you hear this in the news, right? Like Ukraine, grain shipments, and, and there's kind of power plays over this type of thing even today. Well, that was going on back then, and the political dynamic was that the emperor in Rome exiled him and put him out into like the, pay, like the, outer territories, but he influenced uh, many people, and because of his tenacity, many people began to respect his position, and it gradually, enough groundswell was there to be able to recover the Nicene Creed. And a new council, this is the second council that we'll look at this morning, Council of Constantinople uh, was established, and the doctrine of the Trinity uh, became more fully understood as the Holy Spirit uh, began to be developed. You have in your your, your secondary uh, 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 handout there Constantinople 381 update of Nicaea, and here I just highlight the changes that were made regarding t- re- relating to the Council of Nicaea. So I don't repeat everything that's similar. Um, there was a, a, a restatement here that, Article 2 about Christ, that he was begotten of the Father before all worlds. There was, so that's, that's clearly stating um, that he was um, not a created being and that he is very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. And then you see in Article 3 a more developed understanding of the Holy Spirit And I'll just read that. It says, And in the Holy Ghost, uh, we believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And we acknowledge one baptism and remission of sins. uh, We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And, uh, you notice there's a greater effort here, a larger discussion about the Holy Spirit, because there were some within the Empire who said, "We don't really believe that the Spirit is of the same substance as Christ is of the same substance with the Father. That it's more of like a force, a very impersonal." And these these uh, these uh, people became nicknamed the Pneuma Tomakis or the Spirit Killers because they were against the Spirit. Well, the church, through this council, put that to rest and said, no, we believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit having equality. And so what are some things that we can draw from this early controversy? What are some things that we can draw? I think it's it's difficult to to gather some of the um, motivations for some of the political dynamics that are going on there. But we can draw comfort in the enduring statements of Christian belief. And I do believe that there is a building upon these formulas that, that is essential for the Christian faith. We're going to look at one last counsel here this morning because This is probably the most detailed we're going to get into the councils and creeds in the next series of lessons, but I just want to make sure that we we hear this well uh, this morning. And, uh, oh, boy, I really skipped over my slides. Got so excited. Uh, Let's see here. There we go. The third council that I want us to look at is the Council of Chalcedon as it deals with the theology of Jesus Christ and his personhood. Um, how is Jesus both God and man? Okay, we may, we may identify the son of God existing. We might think about it more like in a, in a ethereal, eternal sense in which God is a spirit, he is one, but he also has uh, three personalities. And yet how does the incarnation work in which we see a human being doing these things and how does this nature work within. And so just as with Arianism, there were champions for rival positions. Um, I'm gonna try to simplify this as much as I can, but there were two schools of thought. One school of thought was rooted in Alexandria and led by a teacher named Apollinaris. And he taught that Jesus had one nature with a divine mind and a human body. And I would say that uh, this emphasized an essential unity. And you might look at that and say, well, what's really wrong with that? What happened is that in his practical teaching, it collapsed his humanity into his divinity. He, He was kind of like, I like to say it's like the Jesus films from the 1950s and 60s, where Jesus was just walking around almost floating. He was almost like talking in the third person. And that's how they… Uh, sorry, that's my opinion of that time period in those films. Because there's a, if you've ever watched in The Chosen, if you ever watched The Chosen, you actually see the opposite side of a real heavy emphasis on the humanity of Christ. And so… I see, that's how I illustrate that. And then there was the other school, the Antiochian school. And this was led by a man named Nestorius. He taught that Jesus had two distinct natures. He also had a human and divine nature. And so from this viewpoint, it was like Jesus was schizophrenic. He was talking to himself in himself and the, the divine was talking to the, and there was argumentation taking place. And he would look at, like, Gethsemane as being one of those times where he was at war within the natures between himself. And so this, this, this school of thought thought more on the distinction and division. Um, um, have, has anyone ever heard of the term theotokos? Someone from... Catholic heritages from years ago? No? How about, okay. Well, it's, it's, it simply means mother of God. Maybe you've heard that, Mary being called the mother of God. Okay. Um, that might sound awful strange to a lot of us as Protestants, because it sounds like high reverence for Mary in such a way that we would say maybe we're worshiping Mary. But in this time period, That was almost a critical buzzword for orthodoxy because Nestorius said, no, we don't want to emphasize his divinity, we want to emphasize his humanity and the distinctions. And he said, I don't think we should be calling Mary Theotokos. I think we should be calling Mary Christotokos. That is the mother of Christ, with an emphasis on the divisions. And Nestorius uh, thought that Theotokos was somehow maybe espousing an Arianism, which in the womb of Mary, Jesus was a created being. And so you can kind of see where he might be coming from. And so through this and different arguments that were taking place, a new council was needing to be gathered. And this council uh, convened in Chalcedon. And you have in your handout the the last creed here, on Chalcedonian Creed, on the person of Christ, and so this council reaffirmed what had been said by prior councils, but said now we need to define more clearly what it means for Christ to have a dual nature, and how does it still maintain a unity uh, in his being. And so, I'm just going to highlight the second underlined area here. Can you see the, on the creed the second where it starts, two natures? And so, they said that the, uh, this one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, is made known in two natures which exist without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation." And so they they emphasize that, yes, uh, there are distinct properties within each nature that are preserved. Nevertheless, there is an inherent unity in his personhood. This sounds like you might say, wow, that's a lot of like nuance. And you might say, I'm really glad that we don't have to sit and do that kind of nuance today. Well, you can thank The Christians in the first few centuries for this because they did heavy lifting, heavy work to ensure that when we are worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, we're worshiping an adequate, perfect, substitutional person for us. And um, this, uh, this little phrase, two natures without confusion, has been shortened down to what's called the hypostatic union. Sorry just got to, it's like walk into somebody's tool shop and you got to say, hey, hey what, 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 what's that tool called? <laughs> Some of us may not be equipped, uh, uh, but once we hear, okay, that's, a, that's a, uh, a wrench and okay, and that's a, I don't know, my, I don't know what I'm talking about. Someone can tell me those terms. Well, I'm here to tell you these terms. This is a term that's used as a way of short handle for this idea that these two natures exist without confusion without change, it's called the hypostatic union. And that's who Jesus is. He is perfect God, he's the God-man. And sometimes we talk about him in that way, just simply the God-man. There's never been a God-man and there never will be one again. He is unique. And so heaven joined earth in such a way that it has been forever changed. And so that's what we can give thanks for. But through these uh, early... Centuries up through 451, the church wrestled with these to try to understand them better. And I will say that this uh, Council of Chalcedon, 451, created a first-time schism within Christianity. Um, the uh, Ethiopian Coptic church—maybe you know that there are Christians that who live in Ethiopia— or, or Egypt and Ethiopia, maybe Syria. You've heard of Syrian Christians, maybe. But if they these don't subscribe actually to the council's decision 451, they rejected this and said, "We don't like this articulation. We're going to satisfy ourselves with what the first councils have have determined, and we're not going to go beyond that." And so, just so you know, like within, the hist- within, within Christ- Christianity at the largest, widest vantage point, there's a lot of variations. Um, and so, I particularly found this quite interesting related to my daughter's heritage as an Ethiopian. The Ethiopian church um, rejects that. Also, the church, there's a, there's a Nestorian church that I have learned about in Persia that uh, also rejects this this position as well, and they hold about 50 to 70,000 adherents even today. So it's very unique. Uh, some of these things have still ongoing uh, factors in in our world. So.